Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Dyer. Welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, August 25th. Let's get going with an introduction of this week's panel. George Brockler, the former DA of the 18th Judicial District in Colorado and current show host on 710 KNUS. Also with us this week, Chris Rourke, managing editor at the Denver Business Journal, as well as Alton Dillard, a communications consultant with his company, the Dillard Group. And then lastly, Adam Berg, vice president of government affairs at the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce. Right off the bat, George, I would like to get your reaction to the news that came out of Boulder on Wednesday of this week that the person responsible for the Boulder King Super shootings is able now to stand trial. Well, we got that uh, news from the district attorney's press release that the state hospital at CMHIP down in Pueblo has determined that he's competent to stand trial. I, I think it's good. I think it's good for the community. I think it's good for the victims. And candidly, it's good for the defendant as well. And that is to get us moving forward into this justice process. Two quick things that people ought to remember. One, sanity is very different than competence. And while many times they sit on top of each other, and in something that my teachers I skipped in math school or in math class called a Venn diagram, uh, they may not be an eclipse, but they're close. And that is competence is can't appreciate the circumstances of the trial, can't participate in the defense. Insanity is at the time of the crime, didn't know right from wrong, couldn't form the culpable mental state. Um, now that we've gotten through competence, I expect the defense in this case to pursue whatever avenues they have with the insanity plea. Okay, thank you very yeah. much. Uh, now let's get to what's happened this week. Even though we are more than 14 months away from the general election, a lot has transpired over these last many days that could reflect how things turn out on November 5th, 2024. Uh, Let's talk, George, about, well, there was the debate on Wednesday night. A lot has happened when it comes to the presidential side of this. I thought the debate was interesting, Kyle. But um, listen, uh, yesterday we had the president of the United States turning himself in, but that really wasn't that big of a deal in my mind because it's the fourth time he's had to answer for an indictment. And what an amazing circumstance to find ourselves in 2023 that a president turning himself in on uh, an indictment is routine. And that seems to be where we're at. I'm anxious to see if we're able to move past this. I'm not sure if it overshadowed the debate, but certainly his absence from the debate turned out to be quite a big deal as well. I was intrigued by the different candidates that made it on the stage and sort of how they responded to things. Uh, it's going to be a heck of an election cycle coming up. Chris. Well, with Donald Trump being so much in the news with, with all this legal trouble, I think the debate showed us a glimmer of what life would be like without Donald Trump. I think there was a, a field of competent candidates on the, on the stage. I think we heard true conservative principles being you know, extolled. Um, it was kind of nice to have a break from kind of the, the sniping and the remarks and the personal attacks. We did have a candidate kind of do that, try to upstage a young candidate, he's 38, um, Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, I was very impressed with Nikki Haley, who, I, honestly, I'd kind of forgotten about her. She came out very strong. She pointed out the fact that he has no experience in foreign policy, and it was clearly showing. She later went on to talk about this situation with Trump, and, and she said, look, I, I'm not saying, I don't know if this is, you know, a, a political attack on him with these, with these legal dealings or whether he's really guilty of these charges. But the fact of the matter is he's a huge distraction to this election. And perhaps the Republican Party would best be served by putting him aside and going with another candidate. Hmm. Alton, with your years of working in elections at the city of county of Denver, 
when you see another group of people, hopefuls, when you watch those things, what, what goes through your mind? Uh, a couple things go through my mind. One is, you know, we're in a country and in a state in particular that's very ballot-centric. And so given our societal attention span, anytime you have these debates with six, eight, 10, 12 candidates on stage, I was having flashbacks to the Denver mayoral. It's hard to sort of sort through all that off the top. I found uh, Ramaswamy to be very interesting, but I also, found some of the things that Chris Christie had to say to be very interesting as far as um, you know what he did governing in a blue state. Now locally another thing that we're keeping an eye on of course is going to be the uh, third congressional district and see especially when it comes down to early polls, anything 2% is well within the margin of error. So I think given how sprawling the third CD is, the battleground is actually going to be in Pueblo and bringing back some of those hardcore union Democrats that had strayed over the past few election cycles. Mm, interesting. Adam, your thoughts? Yeah, I think what's interesting and something that hasn't garnered a ton of attention is while President Trump was not at the debate, this isn't the first time this has happened, that a frontrunner has chosen not to attend the debate. And really, I think this was President Trump signaling, I don't need to be there. You guys need to be there. Um, so when we look at history, we've looked at Mitt Romney skipped the first debate of the 2012 cycle. George W. Bush skipped the first three debates in 2000. Bob Dole skipped the first debate in 1996. And Reagan didn't show up till the last debate before the 1980 Iowa caucus. And then we also know that Trump himself uh, also against opt out against attending the pre-Iowa debate. So there's a history of this occurring, and usually it is a front runner who's ahead in the polls, basically signaling that I'm confident in my lead. I don't need to be on the stage with you. Uh, but we're 439 days until election day. So I imagine as the field narrows, we'll sort of see a transition where where the former president might put himself more front and center. Adam is counting the days. Thank you yes, for sir. that history lesson. I kind sure. of forgot all about that about different candidates not coming to debates. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, Kyle, I want to circle back to something Alton said. He talked about the, he cited the Keating Research um, report that came out, the, the survey, and it, it puts uh, Adam Frisch ahead of Lauren Boebert by two points. The, the margin of error is 3.5. So essentially they're deadlocked. And I think this is significant. I know it's very early in the race. A lot can happen. Who knows what can happen? But we're talking about a district that is plus eight Republican. It's a district also that in the poll, Donald Trump still beats Joe Biden by five points. And then also significant was her unfavorables were 53%. Additionally, she has a primary from a very reputable attorney on the Western Slope, Jeff Hurd. He is backed by some heavy hitters, former Senator Hank Brown, who has no reason to come off the bench and get involved in anything unless it means something to him, and also Tim Foster. Tim Foster is the former president of Colorado Mesa University, well-known and well-liked on the Western Slope. She's also having difficulty raising money, comparative to Adam Frisch. You know, perhaps the Republicans want to go a different route and coalesce behind Herd. I'm not sure that might be an answer to them, but it's going to be a very interesting race in Congressional District 3. Get the popcorn. Is there uh, any room for further response on that? And I, again, in no way am I defending the status quo, but the poll was a Democrat, basically, internal poll. And they give you the best numbers they can come up with. And the best numbers they can come up with is within the margin of error. That's really unchanged from the outcome of the election in November. I mean, Lauren Boebert won by hundreds of votes. It sounds like nothing has changed. I think the other thing to remember, though, is 
That outcome took place when there were statewide candidates running for re-election. Senate, governor, none of that will take place now. That takes a lot of money out of the third CD. And the money that's going to show up isn't going to be Joe Biden's money. It might be Trump money to, to gin up the vote. Uh, I'm not sure that she's cold yet uh, on this. Uh, Lauren Boebert could still pull this thing out. And by the way, Adam Fresh also has his own primary that he has to run as well from some credible candidates. So popcorn, yes. He does, but Keating Research is very well respected, George. They have no reason to fool around with the numbers if they're going to maintain respect. The other thing is, you know, Congresswoman Boebert had an opportunity after that very tight election, which sent her a message. She had an opportunity to pivot to become thoughtful on policy, but she continued to demonstrate the same behavior, get grabbing headlines. I'm not sure it's serving her well. Oh, did you want me to respond? <laughs> I'm happy to. She's Jane? looking at you. No, <laughs> 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 no uh, listen, I, I, don't think, I don't think you can count Lauren Boebert out. The last guy that did that was named Scott Tipton, and uh, he's not in Congress anymore. So I think it's too premature to do that, and whether Keaton is respected or not, the poll itself, I agree with Alton, it's too early. It's within the margin of error. It could go any way. I'm anxious to see how this plays out. But this isn't like a rematch, really, of 2022, because we have a president, and then we have nothing except Congress, some DAs, some state Senate, some state House stuff, no huge issues other than potentially HH. All right. I'll send you some popcorn. That's a teaser. That's a teaser. Speaking of HH, the Colorado presidential primary, by the way, is March 5th of next year. But first up, Coloradans will also be voting in November on Prop HH, which, if passed, would reduce property taxes while also shrinking Tabor refunds. And there's a lot more to it. Chris, a lawsuit was filed by conservatives trying to make sure it did not get on the ballot. And the Colorado Supreme Court said, no, it's going to go on the, Supreme Court, on the ballot. Yeah, uh, that's unfortunate for Republicans. Still, I think that opponents to HH have a very strong argument. It's been really vetted on this show quite a bit. You do see more money coming in from proponents, however. Um, so I think that if we see HH defeated, there is a real opportunity here. And I've talked to lawmakers about this. You know, why not call a special session? Get some thought leaders from the legislature together with the governor. And why not take the opportunity to revamp Colorado's tax system? The governor has played around with this idea of eliminating the income tax. Why not come out with a whole new tax system that is reliant on taxing consumptive use with some, ex you know, exemptions? Uh, lower property taxes. I don't think you can do away with them entirely and then eliminate the income tax. What could that do for Colorado's economy? It could be a legacy piece of legislation for both lawmakers and the governor. I think that could be an option worth pursuing. Interesting. Okay. Alton. I'm really going to be interested to hear George's take on this because it seems a little backwards to me. Where did we get in this sort of environment where it's like, okay, let's see if something passes first and then determine if it violates single subject. That's the same thing that's going on out in Aurora with their strong mayor thing. They're like, oh, no, it's good to form and everything like that. And, well, it's not single subject. Well, we have to put it on the ballot and see if it passes, and then we can revisit it. That seems totally backwards to me. And so, you know, just keeping an eye on, like, some things we've talked about on this air before, just how voters seem to be a little more tuned in. But the devil really seems to be in the details when it comes to this. And I know we're going to sort of touch on educational stuff later. Why don't we just keep a simple and fund education. Which, Adam, they say a lot of the money would go to. 
Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. So this is being prefaced by the administration and the proponents as a taxing measure. But when you really get into the weeds of what the measure actually is aiming to do, uh, and our colleagues at Common Sense Institute here in Colorado ran an analysis of this, we're talking about potentially generating billions of dollars to backfill education, uh, well above funding they would get otherwise without this initiative passing, well above uh, the BS factor, which is sort of that stabilization factor we're looking at for schools. Um, and so when you do the math, you're essentially saying, we're going to take property taxes, we're going to lower them, we're going to keep TABOR rebates, and we're going to backfill budgets for local governments and school districts and some others. Uh, local governments have a cap on sort of the backfill they can receive. Schools do not. Schools would get billions and billions of dollars from this proposal, assuming the economy is healthy and all goes well for the next decade. Um, and it's surprising that uh, voters aren't more aware of that. So if there's one thing I would tell voters, I'd say look into the education components of this bill. That's really where the meat of this measure is. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah, to take up uh, Alton's question, I agree. And what he's referring to there is uh, Advanced Colorado filed a lawsuit saying, hey, whoa, 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 this HH thing has at least four identifiable subjects. We have a constitutional requirement that a ballot issue have one subject on it. And the Supreme Court punted. And it said it almost Pelosi'd this thing. Well, you're going to have to vote for it before we find out how many subjects are in it. Um, I think that makes it very precarious for proponents and, frankly, for voters. They may be throwing their vote away on something the Supreme Court may undo after the fact. I think the other thing to remember, though, is that while this is termed a decrease in property taxes, even if this thing passes, property taxes are going to go up by about 31%. You talked about in the beginning that this would shrink Tabor refunds. We're going to have to define shrink to be pretty broad to include the death of Tabor refunds, because if this thing passes, folks are going to lose over the next decade around $5,100 on average, and then they will never, ever, never, ever again get another Tabor refund. Meanwhile, government can grow between now and 2040 by an extra $21 billion if this passes. So while I know the proponents want to say this is a tax cut and has a negative tax consequence, the Common Sense Institute study makes it pretty clear that it is more likely than not that individuals will pay more, uh, property owners will pay more if this thing passes than if it doesn't. Okay. Earlier this week, Governor Jared Polis signed an executive order to slash the amount of time it takes for the state to pay affordable housing developers to get to work. And Alton Polis also told state agencies that they need to get ready for the 1.72 million people who are projected to call Colorado home by 2050. And one of the things with this is, of course, keeping an eye on how our libertarian governor is going to tackle this, because as we've seen with, like, the uh, early childhood thing, there's been a bit of a bumpy rollout. I'm seeing this almost as parallel to what uh, Biden tried to do with the student loans. He got shot down at the court level, so it's like, okay, let's see what we can do because we're not able to come up with the legislative fix that we tried to put through last go-round. Let's come up with a fail-safe. So it makes sense. Now, the thing to also remember is so goes the state, it sort of radiates out of Denver. Brother Jeff always refers to uh, Denver as the mile-high income city because you need a mile-high income to be able to live here. And then there was a time you could escape that by going to a bedroom community like Erie or Frederick or somewhere. Those days are over. We're becoming at risk of being like a boutique state where no one can afford to even live. And quick history lesson here. There was a time when people who worked for the city and county of Denver, there used to be a residency requirement. 
you had to live in Denver. And that's why we have places like Montbello, Green Valley Ranch, Grant Ranch, these places that are 20 miles from the city center, so people could have places to live like in the 70s and 80s. And I see that same thing coming again. We have to have somewhere for our teachers. We have to have somewhere for our law enforcement, somewhere where they can afford to live and work in their same community. So I think this is a good first step. I know. I think it's interesting. So the executive order is basically a directive to uh, different agencies within the government to expedite processes for these sort of 10 strategic, strategic growth objectives. One of the big ones that the governor talked about was expediting DOLA processes um, for executing contracts for developers to, to build housing from essentially eight months to 90 days. And the governor was pressed on this at the press conference about, that sounds great. Uh, how are you going to do that? And I'll be honest, there weren't a ton of definitive answers. Um, we know DOLA workers can't work more. They didn't talk about upping the staff. They simply talked about cutting processes and directing funding. So I think there's a lot of questions remaining on how this will affect. And I don't think we should get confused. This is just the start of another housing fight next session. Yes. Uh, and this is the governor laying the base to say the state is doing its part. Local governments, now it's your turn to put the pressure on them. Hmm. All right, George. Yeah, I've heard this thing characterized in those terms. I've also heard it characterized as, hey, this is just virtue signaling. It's more than that. It is far more aggressive and ambitious than I think most people are, are giving it credit for because what this is is an attempt by the governor to use the state to force localities into bending to the will of the state in terms of housing priorities. And the way it does that is to say, I want every state agency that gives grant money or loans to localities or housing developments to now inventory how they do that. The next step will be for them to say, we're gonna bootstrap that money to these different things. And these priorities include things like um, less infrastructure, minimizing the amount of time. One of the things that he says in this executive order is Coloradans want to live close to where they work. That's not true. I don't feel that way. No one in my community feels that way. That's why we live in Douglas County. I think at the end of the day, this is a first step towards an ambitious plan by a governor who wants to be perceived as libertarian to end up grabbing up more local control by doing what the federal government has been doing to us for years, which is to say, well, we can't legislate a 21-year-old uh, age limit for alcohol, but if you don't do it, we withhold highway funds. This is the equivalent of that. If you want funding for your housing project, you will do it the way we tell you to do it. Hmm. Okay, Chris. Yeah, George is absolutely right. It, it's the power of the purse. But I've talked to a lot of people who agree with him. You know, opponents are saying this is a setup for the 2024 legislative session. The fact that the governor repeated over and over and over, this state is going to lead by example. When you make that statement, it's because you expect people to fall behind you. If you're going to lead, you want people to fall in line. Um, it, it was funny to see the GOP come out and say, why is it the governor has to issue an executive order to get people to do their jobs? So that was also another criticism. Um, the Colorado Municipal League was highly, uh, a very vocal opponent to what was SB 23, uh, 213, which was the, the land use bill. It was basically the state telling local municipalities how to do their zoning. Um, I would anticipate that as this legislative session takes up and goes into a lot of the things they will again, be a vocal opponent to things that they disagree with. Their big mantra is participation, not preemption. So we'll see how it goes. Okay. 
Just as we kick off a new school year, the standardized test scores are out showing how Colorado students are doing academically. And there are some bright lights, but we're still seeing that our kids are dealing with the effects of disrupted learning during the pandemic. And Adam, achievement gaps remain. Yeah, I, I think if anything, we learned from the CMAS results that the damage inflicted by the pandemic continues. Uh, so a few data points. So Asian students outperform white students on 11 of the 12 tests. The white-black achievement gap ran between 24 to 31 points, depending on the subject. The white-Hispanic gap was about the same. Uh, and the gap between students who qualify for federal free and reduced-price lunch and their wealthier peers is actually even higher than that, 27 to 35 points. What this shows us, and I want to be very clear here, those gaps are not new. Um, those are gaps that existed pre-pandemic. If anything, it shows us how much work we have to do to address these gaps, even more now as we come out of the pandemic. So it'll be very interesting with Denver Public School Board election November, many other schools across the state also gonna have to have conversations about what do these test results mean and how do we get to shorten uh, these gaps between students. Your thoughts, George, on how kids are doing? One of the um, statistics that, that Adam didn't cite that is important is girls suffered more under, and, and I want to clarify this, it wasn't the pandemic, it was government's response to the pandemic. Not every state shut their schools down the way Colorado did. And whether you agree or disagree with that, we have the ability to compare to um, uh, performance in Florida and other states that took a different approach. So it wasn't the pandemic, it was the government's response to the pandemic. But girls in the state of Colorado seem to have suffered more in terms of their loss of uh, the gap they had over boys. And, and that's bothersome for the father of a daughter who still plans on taking over the planet Earth. Uh, the idea of whatever we went through causing them a tougher, steeper hill to climb, even in this economy and in this society, is really troubling. I don't know what the way out is. I just know that this tells us that in the future, if we have something else like this pandemic, our response better be more nuanced. It better be more forward thinking because this did not work out for us. It's true, achievement gaps have always been there and, and that they have grown worse. One district, though, uh, I think it really highlights DPS. DPS historically has beaten the state average in all demographics. Uh, under Michael Bennett, they had their best days in that district. All of that has been erased. And clearly this school board, you know, I'd like to see them focused on policy that, that gears towards achievement. I think we've taken our eye off the mark that if, when you want, look, when you want to run a four minute mile, what do you do? That becomes your focus and you put your whole life and immeasurable steps to achieving that goal. You watch your diet, you watch your sleep, you watch, you know, uh, your exercise routine. You don't sit on the couch, eat potato chips, and go for a jog once in a while. We have taken our, our eye off achievement. And I think that's happened particularly in DPS. We see it in the scores. Once we get our eyes back on that and focus on it, maybe we'll see better scores. And I know, Alton, you're always looking at DPS. I'm always looking at DPS as a DPS grad. And there's a few factors here. One, we have a school board that essentially is neutered. Every time someone asks them something about what role did you play in this principal's termination? What role did you play in getting the taste of the South shut down at George Washington High School? Well, that wasn't us. That was such and such. Okay, what's the superintendent doing on A, B, and C? We don't know. And it's like, well, wait a minute. He reports to y'all. 
And so once we get to this November, and I do know that there's going to be some churn just because there are people you know, leaving the board to run for other offices and there are people already starting to backfill. But one of the things with the racial achievement gap, Denver Public Schools is predominantly students of color now. And so to Chris's point, until we get back on focusing on the core outcome of the mission, it's called the Board of Education. Educate our children. Yep. All right. Now it is a point in the show where we go through some highs and lows of the week, either here in Colorado or somewhere else. And George, who's sitting in for Patty this week, and the first chair is going to start us off with something that really disappointed you, angered you, bothered you this week. Uh, it's unresolved, but what bothers me is that we are now four years removed from the unnecessary and tragic death of Elijah McClain, and we still are dealing with a court case that has yet to be brought to trial. It's going to happen next month, and we're still seeing changes in the charges even four years later. My great concern is there's going to be another delay, and I'm telling you, it's not good for the community. It's certainly not good for Elijah McClain's family, and it's not good for justice. Okay. Chris. I hate to bring up a personal matter, but I attended a press event and um, it went longer than I anticipated. I came out to a parking ticket, which is understandable. I didn't feed the meter. However, I came out to an additional ticket, a $100 ticket for not having a license plate on the front of my truck, which I still have the plate. I just have not affixed. And I did appeal to the magistrate. I did get it reduced. But the insult to injury in this situation was I was parked on the very same street in Denver at the very same time of day that four months prior my truck was broken into. And I could not get a police officer to come out and take a report. I had to file online. This is really disappointing to me. It gives me the opinion that the city of Denver is more concerned about revenue than it is about reducing crime. Maybe, that, the, maybe the lesson, though, is an illegally parked car is a safe car because the police actually pay attention to those. Maybe. Maybe That's I should it. be illegal more often. That's it. <laughs> All right, Alton. Yeah, and mine sort of uh, dovetails on that around the uptick in criminality that we're dealing with. You know, for the second time, actually the third time, somebody who has been doing great work in the community has lost the son to gun violence. Mm -hmm. And it just, it just makes no sense. And so there are certain things that as a society, and I don't care what color you are, where you grew up, whether you had a dad or not, this thing where we just default to gunplay to solve all of our problems, I think we are at a societal tipping point that if we don't get our hands back around our kids in some form or fashion, we're in big trouble. Adam. Uh, similarly, so 11 blocks from here earlier this week, there was a shooting at one of the, the homeless encampments here in Denver. They are doing uh, a sweep today as a response, and the administration's receiving a lot of pushback for sort of the quick timeline. And I think it just goes to show the complexity of the issues we are facing as a city. Um, we have a mayor who's been in office for just a couple months, and it's a lot. There's a lot going on in the city right now. Um, and the city is doing their best to respond. So uh, just a reminder of uh, we are certainly not out of the woods, even with a new mayor, with a lot of work left to do. All right, something positive, George. It's Adam's last show. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about that, but it's all for good reasons. It's not because the FCC finally stepped in and did something about my memo. No, it's, uh, it's for all good reasons. I'll let him talk about it. But for me personally, 
great thing was everyone's back to school. I took my son, Trey, up to CSU. Uh, and even though I'm a buff, go buffs twice, uh, I'm gonna wear the green and the gold because uh, this kid is excited for school and the first time since the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I wanna feed that passion. And thank you, Fort Collins, for being so open and welcome. Oh, welcoming. That's, yeah. that's great to hear. Yeah. That's a great time. Uh, mine is kind of fun. I missed last week's show and I wanted to see it. So I Googled Colorado Inside Out and pulled up my whole web page. Of course, you go to the first one to find the link. But I found out that Colorado Inside Out is seen in Austin, Texas. It's seen in California. It's seen in Wisconsin. And I'm really curious about what the other states, why they have an interest in Colorado politics. So if anybody's out there and they want to email the show, I'd be really curious to hear what they like watching. That would be awesome. Mm -hmm. All right, Alton. And me, of course, I'm nerding out on live music opportunities again. There's a thing called Jet Set Jams, which takes place at the airport on the quad by the Westin, and it's uh, Becky Taylor and Sandra Watts have been putting on a music series out there. And because we're in the middle of a live uh, free RTD month, I've been hopping on the A-line and just going out there and catching some great music. And plus, I'll also get a chance in the next week, week and a half to go see a show at the New Dazzle. So I am in heaven right now. Oh, that's good. <laughs> good for you. All right, sir. Yeah, mine is actually the August recess. Uh, so Congress is out. Uh, we have seen our members all over their districts these last couple weeks meeting with constituents, and I think that's where uh, democracy sort of comes to life, right, is when we get these members in D.C. back. Something of interesting was uh, the top Democrat in the House, Hakeem Jeffries, made the rounds with our members uh, this past couple weeks, which tells me uh, Colorado is still viewed as competitive. You can see that the congressional Dems are making an effort to sort of try and lock down Colorado, but you can expect a lot of attention as we head into the next election uh, here in the Denver metro and beyond. So. Okay, all right. And my positive is our friend and our super smart colleague, Adam Berg is starting a big, brand new job after Labor Day. Adam was tapped by Denver Mayor Mike Johnson to be the Federal and State Affairs Director for the city. That job is all about maintaining relationships and advocating for Denver's policy calls, uh, goals and resource, resource needs, not only here at the state capitol, but also in D.C. So thank you. I can't think of a better guy to be more engaged and get people excited about what we need to make Denver and Colorado great. So thank you very much, Adam. We wish you all the best. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, to join the Johnson administration. This was not an easy choice. Uh, the chamber is such a pillar of this community and has been for 150 years. Uh, and I'm sure they will be here 150 years plus or more. Uh, but as no, we have a lot of big challenges here in Denver, and I'm excited to work with the mayor and his team to, to help tackle those. So you're such a good statistic geek. If I ever need something, can I be like, hey? <laughs> yeah, you know where to find me. Yeah, please. <laughs> I mean, you were so on top of all that. So great. Congratulations. We're going to miss you. you, but we're going to be very excited for you. Thanks to our entire panel for coming this week, and for you all who are tuning in, watching from home, or on your device, or listening on our podcast. I'm Kyle Dyer, and I will see you next week here on PBS 12.